Welcome to Prairie Doc On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation of 501c3 provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Doc programs. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedoc.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Vascular disease is the name given to a variety of illnesses that can affect the circulatory system and can be found in anyone. Arteries, veins, and capillaries, understanding your vascular health. Tonight, On Call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, I'm Dr. Jill Cruz, your Prairie Doc host this evening. Tonight's episode is part of our 22nd season providing health information based on science, built on trust. We continue to provide trusted health information this evening as we discuss your vascular health. Joining us to address this topic is Dr. Angelo Santos from Dakota Vascular and Dr. Mark Fleming from North Central Heart, a division of the Avera Heart Hospital. Welcome and thank you for joining us today in the studio here in Brookings on the campus of South Dakota State University. If you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Fleming? Well, my name is Mark Fleming and I'm one of the vascular surgeons at North Central Heart. Uh, I've been now here in South Dakota since April, so a new transplant to South Dakota. Um, I spent time at the Heart Hospital back in uh, fellowship when I was at Mayo Rochester and spent some time with Mike Backrack and that's my connection and how I actually came to join the group at North Central Heart. Oh, wonderful. I love Dr. Backrack. He must have been a wonderful mentor to have. Oh, he's fantastic. Wonderful. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Santos, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I'm not from the Midwest. Uh, I came here about 11 years ago and joined the group at Sanford and worked there for 10 years. and or actually 11 years, and after that I uh, decided to do our own vascular practice and formed Dakota Vascular with three other vascular surgeons. So serving the community here has been uh, a pleasure for the past decade or so, and so we're continuing to do that in our new endeavor. Excellent. Well, thank you for braving the weather to get up here. It was quite the <laughs> rainstorm. So, mm -hmm. All right. Well, um, let's start off. What is a vascular surgeon? Um, how is it different from a cardiologist? I, I know they both deal with hearts or the circulatory system? Yeah, so what I tell patients is a vascular surgeon is a physician that actually operates outside of the heart. So a cardiologist is focused on the heart and a vascular surgeon focuses on the arteries and veins outside of the heart. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about vascular health. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call one 888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered in a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your questions. Well, lots of things that I'm sure viewers are going to want to know. Uh, I know when we were talking with the um, 
pre-med students earlier, you kind of went head to toe about everything that a vascular surgeon covers. Would you mind doing that for our audience? Because I thought that was a beautiful overview. Sure, absolutely. So a vascular surgeon, our territory is almost the entire body. So it starts from the skull base and comes down. And so we operate on carotids for carotid narrowings. Coming further down, we don't operate on the heart. That would be cardiologists and cardiac surgeons. Outside of the heart is going to be the aorta, and so we do operate on the aorta. And so in the chest, if there's an aneurysm of the thoracic aorta, we, we would fix that as well. Going down, um, we have the arms, and so the arteries and veins of the arms we actually do uh, cases on, and so patients who need dialysis access will create fistulas, which is a cre uh, putting together an artery and a vein so that they can have dialysis through that. Uh, moving further down in the abdomen, we do aortic aneurysms, we do narrowings of the intestinal arteries, the kidney arteries, um, and a narrowing of the arteries of the legs. We also do veins in the legs as well. So kind of all, all areas of the body. So wherever the vessels go, you follow. That's right. All right, well that's quite a, a breadth of, and depth of um, interventions that you guys do. So. Dr. Santos, do you want to talk about um, what is involved with vascular health? How can people keep their vessels healthy? Is there something that is a do's and don'ts? Well, first thing, no smoking. I mean, everyone tells that, but unfortunately for our population of the people that we take care of, smoking is a big um, problem. And when you do have a smoker, they have a more likely problem with their vascular um, system. And so what people can do and what we try to do is make sure that they not smoke, they control their cholesterol, control uh, their blood pressure, and try to do just the normal things. But unfortunately, as we get older, not only can the things that we try to prevent you know, affect us, but genetics itself can have problems with the blood vessels. And so we have to keep in mind that we have to know our own history, medical history, our family's medical history, but also continue to change the things that we can change with medications as well as exercise, diet, things like that. Excellent. So out of curiosity, how does smoking affect the blood vessels? You always think, people think about the lungs, but they don't think about it affecting the vessels. What does it do? Well, unfortunately, smoking itself can cause an inflammatory response. It can change the anatomy of the blood vessels by causing damage to the blood vessels, causing things that can cause the vessels to block up with plaque, along with the other things like cholesterol. And when you have this perfect storm that can occur, that can affect your arteries more so than your veins um, in a negative manner. And so it's a uh, it's fun to be able to take care of those things, but we also realize that a lot of the things that we do right now do not just fix them just like that. It's uh, maintenance, it's also trying to prevent things from worsening, but some of these things we can't take care of and just completely put them away. We just have to maintain what we can and try to improve the situation. All right, excellent. Well, we're getting lots of good questions from viewers, so let's dive in. Um, a question from Facebook, what is the best procedure for varicose veins and is massaging helpful? So that, that is a good question and it really depends on the type of varicose veins and so I'll give kind of a, a broad overview and so a lot of times the cause for varicose veins is venous reflux and so in the veins there's valves and when the valves are leaky or not uh, functioning properly 
that can cause a higher pressure, which then over time leads to varicose veins. So there are different ways that we can actually treat that reflux. And so we can use laser ablation, we can use radiofrequency ablation, or actually even more recent, there's glue ablation, which is something called Venusil. And basically what we do is we close down that vein that's refluxing. For the individual varicose veins, there's sclerotherapy, there's avulsions, which are small little incisions and in actually removing the veins. Um, and uh, sometimes to start out with, we start with compression. And so compression and massage can actually uh, help improve symptoms. All right, well, I'm gonna ask you, do, do the people still do the vein stripping where they, I mean, they talked about, I remember that when I was going through training. There's not not really. Not There's very rare occasion that that would be needed. Most of the okay. time now it's minimally invasive. All right. So most of these are off procedures done in the office and you go home after that or is it done in the hospital or So it can be done in either place. They're all day procedures. Um, patients staying overnight is a very rare occasion. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about this glue. I, I'm imagining, you know, taking a big bottle of Elmer's and just squeezing it. <laughs> I'm guessing it's a little bit more sophisticated it, it, than that. It is. It is. And so there is a device that actually measures out how much glue mm -hmm. and you do it under ultrasound guidance. So you actually see where the tip is and you make sure that you know exactly where it's at and then you compress the vein before you actually deliver that glue. So that, glue, that vein doesn't have any blood flow through it when you're delivering that glue. And it basically, it's kind of like spot welding. So okay. it, it closes down every three centimeters so that there's no flow in there. Interesting, all right. Well, Dr. Santos, let's stay on this. There's a lot of questions about varicose veins. <laughs> <laughs> um, how much of that is uh, affected by inheritance for varicose veins? A lot. Uh, typically, the top two reasons why people have varicose veins are family history or they've had a history of childbirth or pregnancy. Uh, a lot of, for some reason, they have increased venous hypertension in pregnancy that causes a backflow where the veins start to stretch. And what I kind of tell my patients are when you have varicose veins, a lot of times they're like balloons. And so they're very thin walled. And when the blood increases inside these veins, they start to stretch. But as a little kid, you blow up that balloon, it goes up and it comes back down but the more you do it and the more that kid blows that balloon up, it doesn't necessarily retract back to when you first bought that balloon. And so along with those veins, that occurs and they start to slowly get bigger, but then they don't retract. And then you start having symptoms, pain, discomfort, itching, burning. And um, those two things with family history as well as pregnancy are probably the main re factors that we look at that could cause or at least predispose you to having varicose veins. Okay. Does high blood pressure play any role with varicose veins? Yeah, or? typically not. Um, most of this is just what we call a reflux where, uh, as Dr. Fleming said, <clears throat> the blood comes backwards sometimes through these valves and when the blood starts to pool or there's what we call more capacitance and it just starts to stretch, that becomes more of a factor as opposed to blood pressure. All right. Well, a uh, caller from Sioux Falls says, is exercise good for the blood vessels? And if so, why? Absolutely. So um, exercise is, is great for multiple reasons. One is it does uh, cause the normal uh, expansion and contraction of the arteries. And so raising your blood pressure, doing some aerobic exercise is definitely beneficial to the, to the vessels. 
All right. And does that help with varicose veins too, moving with those muscles kind so of contracting? So the, the calf muscle actually does help with venous return in the, in the legs. So walking, running, things like that. Um, if you do have varicose veins, using some compression stockings when you do exercise will also be beneficial. Okay. Are there brands of compression stockings you recommend? Because people hate them, <laughs> notoriously hate. Um, I think the medical grade uh, stockings are really good. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they're very expensive, and insurance companies now don't necessarily pay for them. Um, what I try to do with my patients is just to be reasonable and tell them if they have a place where they can buy cheaper stockings to try those first because then they won't have as much money out of their pocket. So Amazon, going to Shields, going to Walgreens or Walmart, try them. And are they the best quality? The answer is no, they're not the best quality. However, I know a lot of patients that try them and don't like the compression stockings. And so I can't say that there's a brand that I'm saying, yes, you have to have it, but the medical grade brands are definitely more sturdy and better long term than some of the cheaper type of compression stockings. Do they have like more um, compression or grades of compression or? Most of them have a certain type of compression, okay. 20 to 30 millimeters of mercury, 30 to 40, 40 to 50, um, and usually they're on the box. Okay. And so if you know kind of what your physician wants, they'll, they'll tell you and then you can kind of look that up. Or if you really are just wanting your doctor to pick something, we can write prescription, but those socks are expensive. Okay. How about getting them on? That's the trouble. People are like, I have yeah. them, but I can't get them on. I can't get them off. Yeah, so unfortunately for varicose veins, generally we recommend 20 to 30, and those are very difficult to put on. There are different donning devices that you can actually use. You can put it on a device that actually you can actually grab the device and it helps put on the, the stocking. And there's some patients that have arthritis in the fingers, and so we have something called a circade wrap. And so the circade wrap is a compression device that works like a stocking, but it's Velcro wraps, and so it's much easier if you have arthritis in your fingers. Okay, and occupational therapists, do you ever send patients to them to help them learn how to these, use these tools to get them on and off? I haven't or, in the haven't? past. Okay. We usually just go to the circade wraps if they're okay. having difficulty. They're having that yeah. much trouble. All right, well, since we're on varicose veins, a caller from Sturgis asks, I have varicose veins on my feet and my feet look quite blue. On my veins there are little black dots or bumps that I can feel but they're not painful. What are they and how do I get rid of them? Well they're probably little tiny veins and, and in the foot it can be very difficult to um, <clears throat> look at because you're like why is my foot turning purple? Um, a lot of that is just the blood is kind of pooling in those areas and possibly if you're looking at those things and then you put your leg up, you'll notice that some of that purpleness actually starts to go away. I and mean, if that's truly the case, then you probably do have some issues with your veins uh, that could be treated uh, with uh, injections or other things that could be a sign of bigger, more problematic things in the bigger veins down the upstream or things like that. So I'm not saying that those are a really bad problem, but it could be a result of some other things that might be going on in the leg with their veins. All right, well, for many people, varicose veins are simply a cosmetic concern. For other people, varicose veins can cause aching, pain, and discomfort. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower takes us to North Central Heart to talk about what they are and what can be done. 
Dr. Dustin Weiss is a vascular surgeon with North Central Heart in Sioux Falls who helps with vascular problems. One problem he helps with is venous disease or varicose veins. So venous disease has a, a wide spectrum from just very mild spider veins to progress to varicose veins to swelling and some patients will even get skin changes with darkened hyperpigmented skin and thickened skin or even progress to ulcers. Dr. Weiss says that veins in your legs have the hard job of bringing the blood back to your heart. So if someone is standing, the valves prevent blood from flowing backwards and pulling in your legs. With venous disease, those valves don't work like they should, causing pressure in the veins. So it's just like if I had a garden hose and I held it 10 feet in there and it's full of water, it's going to be higher pressure at the bottom. So if those valves in the superficial veins don't work, what happens then is the branches, there gets to be high pressure and then those branches get big and dilated, which then cause the varicose veins and also can cause swelling. Genetics, age, and blood clots can play a factor in developing varicose veins, as well as people who stand or sit for long stretches. And then we also see it more commonly in pe people that, you know, on their feet for long periods of time or sitting for long periods of time with their feet in a dependent position. But Dr. Weiss says there are no risk factors that could lead to venous disease. If someone develops the disease, the first step in combating it is compression socks. So the first treatment is to push the blood flow out of those superficial veins and into the deep veins, and that's why we use compression socks. So we, the first time we'll see patients, we'll have them you know, wear compression socks, which helps push the blood flow into that deep vein, and often will help with the symptoms. Other things patients can do are to lift their feet in the air when relaxing and make sure to sleep in a bed rather than a recliner. If the compression socks aren't working, Dr. Weiss says some surgeries are offered to help fight the disease. If the veins themselves are big and dilated, the varicose veins, but there is not vein reflux, meaning that the valves work fine in your veins, then we can do either injections, like sclerotherapy is it called, or microvabectomy, which are small incisions, and we actually remove those varicose veins. Overall, Dr. Weiss says if varicose veins start to develop, getting compression socks should be the first thing to do. If you have symptoms of varicose veins, the compression stockings are important to help with those symptoms. But then if we do have patients that develop severe disease and have ulcers, then yeah, the compression is, is, is needed for them to heal up. Well, this was very interesting. We, we were just talking about uh, varicose veins and, and there was a great uh, roll in with Sam. So he always does such a good job. So we were talking earlier about kind of vascular screenings that people can get. You know, sometimes they'll come to your church, they'll roll in with a bus and, and do screenings. They'll do an ultrasound of the carotid arteries in the neck. They'll screen for um, abdominal aortic aneurysms with an ultrasound in the abdomen. Are those screenings helpful? Who would most benefit from getting those screenings? Absolutely. So at North Central Heart and Navarra Heart Hospital, there's Planet Heart. Mm -hmm. And so that is a screening uh, for patients that are at risk. And so patients that are at risk are usually older than 50, but sometimes younger than 50. High cholesterol, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, history of smoking or active smoking, and so those patients definitely would benefit. All right, excellent. And then after, um, let's talk about carotid artery stenosis a little bit. Um, so those ultrasounds, what is it measuring when they're looking at that? 
Uh, ultrasounds usually are looking for velocities. So what I try to explain to my patients is, I try to simplify things. I try to let them know that when they're looking through this tube, when things get tighter, the speed inside the blood vessel can increase. And I usually use my hose kind of analogy. When you have a hose and the water is coming out of the hose, if it's just going out, it's a nice steady stream. But once you close off the hose a little bit, then all of a sudden that water starts to spray out and go faster. And so when they're using an ultrasound, they're trying to basically look and see if there's a tightening enough where that causes things to speed up. And that can tell us that there might possibly could be a blockage in that area. Okay, so how much blockage is too much blockage when you need to actually go in and fix it? It depends. So we do have different uh, categories of patients. So we have patients that have symptoms. And for carotids, symptoms are considered mini stroke or TIA or stroke. And then there's a third thing called amaurosis fugax. Big, complicated name, but it te what it means is temporary blindness of the eye. So if there, you have any of those three, then we would fix a carotid narrowing that's over 50%. Patients who are not having symptoms, we generally wait until it's much more significant. Uh, the current recommendations are 70 to 80% or greater. And so it depends on the surgeon on where they put that threshold between 70 and 80%. All right, and are we doing more like stenting or are they still doing a lot of the bypass surgery or is it very patient specific as to what's the best option? I mean, most of the things are tried and true in terms of surgery. Uh, that's been kind of the main thing, but there are other options where we place stents. Uh, those are kind of the things that it is patient specific. It is determining on what comorbidities they have, have they had prior surgeries. So yes, we can say we do it this way, but a lot of times we have to look at the patient, see what their circumstances are, and try to determine which is going to be the safest for them. All right, excellent. Well, a viewer is asking, what are the most common vascular tests? We mentioned ultrasound. That yep. seems to be used a lot. So the ultrasound is probably one of the most common. We also do what's called ankle brachial indices. And so what that does is that compares the blood pressure in the arms to the blood pressure in the legs. And what that does is gives us a sense, if the blood pressure at the ankles is lower than the arms, there must be a blockage. And we then usually follow that up with an ultrasound to okay. see where that blockage is. We also do CT scans. So CT angiograms are a, a very good non-invasive way of actually seeing what the vessels actually look like. All right, excellent. Uh, let's see, a caller from Hills, Minnesota says they have a venous lake on their lower lip. What causes it and can it be removed? Or if it, do you guys remove those or is that someone else? I don't take care of that. Okay. Uh, I've never really been asked to take care of that. So usually that's more so uh, dermatologic type thing. ENT. ENT, yeah. yeah. All right. Sounds good. Uh, viewer from Sioux Falls uh, wonders, could vascular problems be causing leg cramps in the shins? They could, and more specifically in the calves. And so if it's the front of the, of the uh, lower leg, the shin, it's not as common. So most patients that are going to have vascular insufficiency or PAD, they're going to have pain in the calves and it's gonna be a cramping pain that makes them stop walking. It's usually a predictable distance that they walk and so from day in and day out, they'll have about the same distance that they can walk before that cramping starts. Okay, so that's pain with activity. What about pain with rest or, or symptoms that would make us worry about like blood clots or? I think pain at rest is actually more concerning than pain activity. Um, if you have really, really bad PAD or peripheral arterial disease, 
people are in so much pain that they can't walk. It's usually lower in the foot. They have skin changes. So there's a conglomerate of all different symptoms that you have to, to kind of I identify. When we start thinking about clots, we think about acute things, things that happen just like that. So if you have an acute problem with your foot, which you never had before, and all of a sudden you can't feel it, it hurts, it's gotten cold, then you're concerned that maybe a clot formed in the artery. Most people, though, think about clots in the veins, and a lot of times they'll have dull aches, swelling, heaviness, um, discomfort, not in so much a sharp pain, but more so of an ache. And so those are the things that help us determine what to try to order to find out if they have a clot. But symptoms are very um, telling of how we start trying to diagnose a problem. And usually clots one side versus both sides. It'd be pretty rare to get blood clots in the same spot on both legs at the exact same time, correct? It, it is rare, but it does But happen. it doesn't happen? Yeah. All right, so there's, there's the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> All right, excellent. Uh, from an email, how would a vascular surgeon help with chronic wounds that will not heal? So very, the kind of the first thing that we would do is actually assess the arteries. And so for wounds that patients have had for quite some time, a lot of times if there's not enough blood flow, that's preventing the wound healing. So we would do what we talked about before, the ankle brachial index. It gives us a good idea of how the blood flow is down, down the leg. Second thing is an ultrasound if that's positive. And then to correct that blood flow, sometimes we'll do an angiogram and do stenting, angioplasty, or even atherectomy. And if that's not a possibility, then we can actually even do a bypass of a leg artery. Okay, so when we're doing these angiograms, how are they getting to the vessel? Yes, yeah, so it's through a small little needle, um, very much like putting an IV, but we put it into the artery at the groin, the femoral artery. And you know, patients usually ask, why are you going into the left side if you're looking at the right leg? And so we actually do that because the blood flow to the leg actually starts up in the abdomen. And so it starts at about the belly button level. So to be able to fully treat the blood flow to a leg, we actually start on the other side to go up to actually uh, visualize that artery going all the way down the leg. I never thought of that. That makes perfect sense when you, you mention that. So you want to see it right from where it breaks off and splits to each leg to see where the problem is, if it's high or if it's lower. Okay, interesting. Um, Will varicose veins come back after they are treated? Yes. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Unfortunately, we, um, we have people that come to us having varicose veins and they're always hopeful that they get rid of them, get rid of the pain, uh, get rid of seeing them. And we can do that. But unfortunately, there are a lot of veins uh, throughout your leg and the blood just reroutes to these other veins that are open and they can start to have changes like the veins that were removed or closed off. So it's very important for us to really be upfront with our patients so they know what to expect and not to think falsely that once you go somewhere, you get veins removed or taken care of, you'll never have those veins again. We're not smart enough yet to figure out how to prevent that, um, but I'm sure there's someone out there trying to figure it out. Okay, so it wasn't the one that you fixed that broke again, it's a new one that's kind of picking up the slack and the collateral for the one that you blocked off that now is having new problems. Typically. Okay. All right, well, that is very interesting. Well, limb preservation is a coordinated multidisciplinary program to avoid amputation. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer takes us to Dakota Vascular in Sioux Falls to learn more about it.
Dr. Greg Nissen works at Dakota Vascular in Sioux Falls, and he helps with limb preservation. He looks for problems in the vascular system from a blood clot to ischemia, which reduces blood flow and oxygen to a limb. So if you have a blockage in your iliac artery that comes down into your pelvis before it gets to the leg, you'll have thigh or buttock ischemia. If left unchecked, it progresses to wet tissue loss, also known as gangrene. His team makes sure that doesn't happen, and they look for signs that impact the patient's ability to move. I had a lady last week that said, I can't make it from the parking lot into the front of Walmart without having to sit on the bench before I grab my cart. Well, that's a, that's a signal. Okay, something's going on here, and that's a lifestyle limitation. You know, what can we do to make that better to improve their quality of life and to keep them independent? If a blockage is suspected, Dr. Nissen makes sure to know everything about the patient, from their family history to a physical examination. Then we get you to our vascular lab, which sounds scary, right? Oh my gosh, the lab. But what it is, it's just an ultrasound, and we have these amazing ultrasound techs here that will put a probe, let's take some jelly, put a probe on, and they can tell us where there is a blockage that we can potentially go after. If a blockage is found, Dr. Nissen says surgery has advanced to be minimally invasive and patients could leave the same day or only after a couple days. Put it in through the artery and use, you know, x-ray technology, thing right behind me, and then deploy this thing, which is this big, you know, in their, in their aneurysm. And, you know, it looks really similar to that, right? But we're doing it through a smaller incision. We're doing it with x-rays. We don't have to make a big incision. They're leaving post-operative day number one the next day. What makes Dr. Nissen happy about his job is how close he gets to patients. And once the surgery is done, he makes sure to always follow up with the patient to make sure the limb is okay. And then you just have to know that like, once I do something, it's my responsibility. I'm accountable for, for that repair. So I'm gonna follow that forever. Either until you move, I move, or we go meet Jesus. <laughs>
patients having open aortic aneurysm repair is becoming less and less common, although um, in the past we've both done a ton of open aortic operations. All right, and if that aortic aneurysm gets beyond that five centimeters, five and a half, and it ruptures, how catastrophic is that? Extremely. Okay. Um, old kind of things that we used to learn in training is that half those people that have a ruptured aneurysm don't even make it to the hospital. Half of those that get to the hospital don't survive. Things have changed. I think technology has allowed us, if you can get them to the hospital, you have a higher chance of surviving that. Uh, but that's why screening, that's why uh, following up with people with certain risk factors is important so we don't get to that point. Um, it is very, very um, significant mortality when you have a ruptured aneurysm. Okay, and risk factors for developing an aortic aneurysm? Smoking history is one the of the big top. One, biggest yeah. one? Yeah. Okay. All right. The other thing, family history. Mm -hmm. So if you have a family member that's had a ruptured AAA or a AAA that's been uh, repaired, there's probably a 25% chance that a first-degree relative will have an aneurysm as well. Okay. And any genetic uh, component um, as far as genders? I, I've seen most of my patients I've sent with these have been male. Is that stand S true? Slightly more males than females. Okay. Yes, absolutely. All right. Sounds good. And But the abdominal aortic aneurysm isn't the only place that the aorta can have an aneurysm. Where else can it have those? So the other areas that we treat are the descending thoracic aorta. So that's the aorta that's inside the chest. Um, the aorta starts at the heart and comes up and it's called the ascending aorta. <laughs> Generally as the ascending aorta comes off, it gives off the two coronary arteries. And that territory is really cardiac surgery. So that's still part of the the heart area. Um, as it comes around the bend, it gives off the arteries to the arms as well as to the head, the carotid arteries. And that territory uh, can become aneurysmal as well. So sometimes it's a combined case with cardiac surgery to fix those complex aneurysms. Once it comes down to the descending thoracic aorta, that's the, the area that's actually leading down to the abdomen, those actually, the vast majority are treated in a minimally invasive fashion that we do. And so it's another aortic stent graft and it's uh, a straight tube instead of now being like an inferenal where you actually have a stent that goes into two different pieces, one down to each leg. So um, technology has, has been fascinating and yes. it has been uh, continuing to advance. All right, so it sounds like your incisions are getting smaller and smaller to the point that mainly you're going in through vessels with just a pinpoint entry. Yeah, it's, technology is, is very important in our field. Uh, there's always trying to strive to get, do new things, uh, less invasive, but there's still a role for open surgery. Um, we talked about aneurysm in other places, and as you start to go down, you can even have aneurysms in the blood vessels, behind the knee, in your groin, and so sometimes those are actually fixed with good old-fashioned surgery. So yes, we like minimally invasive, but we also want to do what's best for the patient long-term. And so we have to be very judicious of how we choose to do things. All right, and these minimally invasive procedures, is that usually a, a same day you come in, have the procedure, go home, or is there hospital stay involved? It, it depends on what it's for. So in aortic aneurysm, we usually keep the patient overnight. Uh, for lower extremities, so leg blockages, those patients usually stay um, just the day, a uh, few hours after the procedure, and are able to go home.
Wow, it's a big change from when we were doing all these open procedures. So, how do you guys stay up to date on all the changes of, of things and these new procedures and? Well, the internet, <laughs> always. Um, but uh, colleagues, as well as going to conferences, we are always tested. Um, every few years, we have to be tested to be up to date and making sure we are doing the appropriate uh, type of treatment. And so, well, there are some checks and balances that we have to go through. All right, excellent. Well, what do you guys foresee is the next greatest thing that might be coming down the road? Or, ooh, that's you know the the Achilles heel is really blockages below the knee, okay. and so what we call infrapopliteal disease, and so patients that have sores or wounds, uh, a lot of times, especially the diabetic patient, will have uh, blockages in that area. We still don't have great technology for that area, uh, but here in the future, hopefully in the next five to 10 years, we'll have a, a much better treatment. Okay, now some more blockages in the arteries. Uh, what can you guys do for blockages or blood clots in the veins? Do you do much with that? And we do, and it really just depends on the timing. Um, if there's what we call an acute clot, a lot of times we can remove the clot, we can dissolve the clot uh, in the legs and in other places where there are uh, clots in the veins. Um, if there are chronic clots, usually that's scar tissue, and it's really hard for us to take care of some of those veins because when veins get injured or start getting blocked off, they actually kind of atrophy and get smaller. So trying to fix those can be very difficult. Uh, there are some times, though, we can open up some veins and improve things with stents, but it's actually a rarity. Um, but clots definitely, if we can catch them an appropriate amount of time, in those veins, we can make a significant difference, not only short-term, but long-term. Okay, is it clots in the leg or clots in the arms, or where's, where are you able to go in and yeah, bust so, them up? So I, I kind of divide things between the arteries and the veins. Mm -hmm. So clots in the veins, there are specific vein clots that we actually will go after in good surgical candidate patients. Um, those are called iliofemoral um, DVTs, and so that's going to be more the bigger veins that kind of are up above the groin level going down into the pelvis. Those clots really cause a lot of symptoms, a lot of swelling, and patients can have a lifelong um, issue with what we call post-thrombotic syndrome if those aren't corrected. Um, and the way that we do that is we can go in and we have a device that will actually suck the clot out, and we actually have some medicine that will dissolve the clot and usually those patients are presenting to the emergency department. Clots that are in the arteries, it's again, patients will present to the emergency department most commonly, and we actually have devices that will actually suck the clot out as well as uh, medicine that will dissolve the clot. That's fascinating. All right, well I would be remiss if I did not ask you guys about cold fingers and toes. <laughs> my husband will thank you if you can find a way to fix my chronically cold toes at night. Um, people always say, oh, is that poor circulation? Why are your toes so cold? Why are my hand, my patients ask, why are your hands so cold? I, I always half jokingly say it's all the hand sanitizer, but um, people that deal with cold fingers, cold toes, is that a vascular problem? Is there poor circulation? I usually tell patients, you know, it's it's not uh, vascular issues, and so the first signs of vascular issues are going to be that cramping in the calves. And so, uh, if you just have cold feet, lots of us have cold feet. My wife will complain that I have cold feet. <laughs> so it's it's not uncommon. Uh, many times, it's caused by the nerves, so the autonomic nervous system. And so, uh, having cold hands or cold feet 
usually is not a circulation issue. Okay, so when you have the color change, more like a Raynaud's issue where it can go to the blues and the reds and the whites. Now that, that can be, yes. Okay. So that's gonna be arterial spasm. Okay. And so, yeah. All right, how would you treat that then with the spasm? So the first, uh, the first uh, treatment for that is going to be a calcium channel blocker. So a medicine, an oral medicine. Um, also avoiding any cold exposure. So especially here in South Dakota with cold winters, it's put the gloves on before you go outside because once you get the cold exposure, those arteries just constrict down. Okay, excellent. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, renal artery stenosis. So that, that renal artery gets tiny and then that can affect blood pressure. I've had patients where we've had them on three, four medications, we're not making any headway. I send them to you guys, miracle. You fix things, I'm well, very grateful. We're, we're thankful that we have an opportunity to be able to take care of that. Before things were just treated medically, but there are specific times where actually intervention on those blood vessels can help improve uh, the control center. So that as we know, there's an area there um, that's basically a sensor. It kind of tells the kidney if it's getting enough blood flow, and if it's not, then sometimes it sends signals to try to increase the blood flow by increasing the pre blood pressure falsely. And so, if a patient is having issues with uh, blood pressure control, then we do try to get an ultrasound and try to evaluate if there is really some issues or blockages in the arteries going to the kidneys. And yes, most of the time we do it minimally invasive by placing stents. Uh, sometimes we do surgery, but that is a very, very rare situation. So um, it's great that we have these opportunities to fix things through really tiny little incisions and it's made a big difference for patients. All right, well in our last few minutes here, we've got about five minutes left, and let's get as many of these viewer questions as we can. Uh, from an email, what is aortoiliac occlusive disease? Absolutely, so aortoiliac occlusive disease is when you have blockages or narrowings in the aorta and iliac arteries, and so that can cause those symptoms. Even though it's downstream, the calves are usually the first thing that have symptoms, and so a lot of patients come in and when we diagnose it, they say, well, my symptoms are in my calves. Why is there an issue? And I, I tell patients that it's, it's the flow getting all the way down there. So if you have a faucet and you have a tube that's connected to it and you turn the faucet down, well, you're going to see that there's low blood flow or low uh, fluid flow down at the end of the tube. And so that's generally why patients have the symptoms in the calves. All right. Well, viewer wonders, does a vascular surgeon deal with stroke patients? We do certain stroke patients. Uh, some patients that have stroke and have uh, blockage in their arteries in the neck, we are the ones that typically take care of that blockage to try to prevent strokes from happening. Or if there's blockage that is causing strokes and they're having symptoms, then we also take care of that acutely. Um, so those are the type of patients that we do take care of in terms of stroke patients. But if there are other reasons, like clots going to the brain or high blood pressure or bleed, those are the things that we don't take care of. All right, sounds good. Well, what is pelvic vein disease? I think that's more of a gynecologist question. <laughs> it is, so there's something called pelvic congestion yep. uh, syndrome. So pelvic congestion is really going to be when the veins in the pelvis become engorged and it does have to do with reflux and valves that aren't working. All right, so not something that you generally would treat as a vascular surgeon. Actually, we do. You do? Um, so, but it, we don't go searching for it. Okay. It's usually things where patients have come to the point where 
they are suffering, uh, they've kind of done their standard things to try to help improve their symptoms. But most people that we take care of have these type of issues with those particular veins in the pelvis, uh, but they have significant pelvic pain while they're on their uh, period, or they just have a fullness or ache in their pelvis where a lot of the other treatment things that they've done haven't worked. And if they do have those issues with those veins, we'll actually close them off and it can relieve some of the pressure. But it is pretty rare. Okay, excellent. Well, a caller asks, can you talk about the V-block occlusion stent for venous reflux? I don't think I've even heard of that. I, I, yeah, I can't I say I've heard, heard, of, heard of that either. I was hoping you guys would. So. That must be a really new technology. A really new technology. <laughs> we'll have to call a drug rep there. So I will have to look that up myself. I do not know. Uh, from an email, a pain or cramping in the calves, thighs, or buttocks that comes with walking or other exertion but then goes away with rest. What do you think that could be? That could be arterial insufficiency. So that could be PAD. That's very classic. A predictable amount of distance that someone can walk before symptoms start. Symptoms usually start in the calves, but they can make their way up into the thighs as well as the gluteal region. All right, well, we've got two minutes left. I'll give one minute to each of you. Any last final thoughts you want to share with our audience? Um, I'm just hopeful that this kind of talk will allow people to kind of pay attention to their body. Um, people, especially in South Dakota, are tough, and they always kind of sweep things under the rug and say things will be fine. But nowadays, there's some minimally invasive things that we can do to help alleviate problems in terms of discomfort, increase activity, have a better quality of life. And so we know that we're tough, hardy South Dakotans. However, if there are things that can make life a little bit better, um, pay attention to your body. Okay. And if you have issues, let your primary care provider know and they'll kind of know if they need us or not. All right. I would actually say the same thing. And so when it comes to diagnosis early, it's much easier to fix disease when it's in the early stage than we wait until it's like that foot that we saw on that uh, clip. So the earlier someone can seek medical care, see their primary care doctor, get the initial screening, the better patients are gonna do long-term. The other thing that I would say to patients is that really stay active. The more active you are, the longer you're gonna do well, the better your arteries are going to be. Excellent, so if a vein is swollen and it doesn't hurt, should they talk to you or do you wait till it hurts before you? They can still talk to us. Okay. Um, when it's not hurting, we will start with compression stockings and see how that does. All right. Do I have to uncross my legs and stop doing that? <laughs> nope, no, not, not at all. Okay. <laughs> all right. Excellent. Well, the winner of our prize tonight is Bob from Rapid City. Thank you, Bob, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Have you downloaded and subscribed to the Prairie Doc podcast? Health professionals join host Laura Ellsworth each week to discuss and take questions about timely medical information. Search Prairie Doc on Apple, Spotify, SoundClouds, or wherever you find podcasts today. From the back of our hands to the back of our legs, pale blue blood vessels are visible just under the skin. Normally, these veins are flat and not painful. However, when these vessels become abnormally swollen or dilated, they're called varicose veins. This swelling is caused by the valves inside the veins becoming weak and no longer sealing tightly. 
varicose veins can become painful, quite large, and stick out from the surface of the skin. In order for blood to return from your feet back to the heart, the blood must be pumped against gravity. Check valves in the veins are what keep the blood from pooling back down in the legs between heartbeats. When the heart beats, called systole, the valves open and allow the blood to move upward. When the heart is paused, filling for the next beat, called diastole, the valves close, keeping the blood from flowing back towards the feet. As we age, these valves become weak and don't fully close. Then the surrounding veins become swollen with extra blood, causing varicose veins to occur. Women are more likely to develop varicose veins than men due to hormonal changes during pregnancy and menopause. Standing or sitting in one position for long periods of time can also increase the risk of developing varicose veins, since leg muscle contractions also help move the blood against the gravity. Older age, obesity, and family history are all common risk factors. Varicose veins do not just look unsightly, they can also cause pain in the legs. They often lead to an aching or heavy feeling in the legs. Varicose veins additionally lead to burning, throbbing, itching, or muscle cramping in the legs. If that is not bad enough, complications related to varicose veins can include ulcers, bleeding, or blood clots. Unfortunately, there's not a way to repair these valves once they are damaged. However, there are some things you can do to help manage varicose veins. Wearing compression stockings can help decrease swelling in the legs. Frequent movement of the legs, such as pumping your ankles a few times an hour, raising your legs above the level of the heart for 15 minutes each day, and increasing the exercise and losing weight can all help increase blood flow. If these measures do not give the relief you need, then it is time to talk with your doctor and discuss seeing a specialist for more advanced treatment. There are several different treatments available and they can help you find the one that is right for you. While varicose veins may be below the surface, do not let them get to the point where they really get under your skin. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Angelo Santos and Dr. Mark Fleming for volunteering their time to help us learn more about vascular health. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and listen to us live every Wednesday morning at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of health information based on science, built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people.
from your first period to your last, your menstrual cycle is a complex relationship between hormones from the brain and the ovaries. Menarche to menopause. Next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Carter Holm, and uh, I have been a nurse for about eight and a half years. Worked for the first half of my career in a nursing home, uh, but now I'm at a Vera McKinnon inpatient rehab. My dad worked with On Call the Prairie Doc and started the Healing Words Foundation. And uh, after he passed, we decided as a family that we would take turns on the board to represent uh, what we feel is our dad's best wishes. So I feel like I've been involved with it my whole life, but uh, specifically the last two years working on the board. It's an incredible resource for our community and um, with the, the hard work of the volunteers, we're providing a resource to the community of South Dakota that is pretty rare to help prevent people from needing to go to the hospital, you know, to prevent the spread of misinformation. You know, providing that science-based approach uh, really was a passion of my dad's and something that we're really, we're really honored to continue. It gives people that first step because it's a way that we can talk to our physician without having to make an appointment or having to wait or having to frankly spend any money. You know, a free service to help provide information, helping prevent potential hospital stays or more serious health issues. dad was a physician, my mom uh, a nurse practitioner. When I graduated from high school, the one thing I knew was I did not want to go into medicine. <laughs> and then as I grew and matured, the idea of having a stable career that allowed me to help people became sort of my driving focus. And uh, On Call with the Prairie Doc started so long ago with the idea of helping people. It has inspired me in that, you know, I'm a professional nurse, but I'm a helper first and foremost. For more information or to donate, go to www.prairiedoc.org or send your donations to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota, 57006. Thank you for your support. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello Possibility. Hello Healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Aberry Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, 
Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Lander District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Tell Communications.